Hi, I'm Tom Woods, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm your host, Doug Stewart, and I have another podcast guest on. So there are a lot of podcasts out there, and I know that all of you, our dear listeners, are <laughs> you have plenty of time to listen to every single one of them, of course, that's sarcasm, but um, you, you have a limited amount of time to listen to them. And I you know, you have to know what do you listen to, you know, you need recommendations from people. So I have a podcast to recommend to you, and it's called Our Foundations Podcast. And with me is the host, Joshua Longbrook of the Our Foundations Podcast. Joshua, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me on. So tell us a little bit about your podcast and what its goals and purposes are. So uh, basically, my podcast covers the evolution of the economic and political and educational systems that we live under in society. It's a pretty broad scope, but it covers everything from history to political theory to economics to corruption and conspiracy, and all from more of a contrarian or libertarian angle, I should say. Overall, it's chronological. So I start off at the beginning of season one talking about the origins of money and how did we go from a barter system to using markets to gold to fiat currencies, where did banking develop, that kind of stuff. I do a whole series on the origins of money and our modern economic systems and where do governments come from and why and how did people educate themselves a long time ago. And then I move into a series on more modern history of, you know, what's the foundations for our current systems? How did we get to having a Federal Reserve system and central banking and things like that? And then I get into kind of our current situation in the following series on our current economic status, what's going on from a macro view, our political climate, the modern public education system, things like that. And then I get into kind of what you can do to mitigate the negative aspects of some of these systems because they are very imperfect. There are a lot of issues. And if you are listening to this podcast and have a more libertarian take on things, then I'm sure you're very well aware of that. And so the answer is that you can use uh, techniques known as agorism. If you're not aware of that, that's basically just operating outside of the system. Things like going to a farmer's market or using a 3D printer or avoiding taxes as much as possible, different things like that. How do you operate and live life outside of the system so it's a little more practical? Things like homesteading even and doing your own things. And then I wrap up season one talking about some alternative options and movements. So I do a whole series basically that destroys the foundations for a modern governmental system. I give the moral arguments against it, the practical arguments against it, how to turn it into a voluntary system that theoretically would be possible. And then I get into anarcho-capitalism and get into that and describe kind of what that is and cover a lot of the objections. And then for money, I talk about blockchain technology and all the potential for that and the problems. And then also some educational alternatives like homeschooling and things like that. 
And that wraps up season one. And that is what I am currently wrapping up right now. I just released the intro to season two a few days ago. So that's where I am right now. That is a lot. And so I think it might be helpful for our listeners to know, like, what, how big are these bites, if you, to use a metaphor, like, because that's a lot to chew on. And I'm sure they could spend the rest of 2020 just, you know, studying those issues. But obviously, you've condensed them to an extent. But where, what's the format that people can expect? Well, basically, I try to stick to about an hour per episode. Some are 45 minutes and some are a decent bit longer. The series on corruption and conspiracy in particular has some episodes that are around two hours long. And so I know that's a lot to commit to, but there is a lot to go over when you're talking about corruption and conspiracy. And I'm not getting into aliens and lizard people and things like that. It's more the Federal Reserve System and how the modern education system was started and the influence of the Rockefellers and the Carnegie Endowment and congressional investigations and things like this, CIA, all that kind of stuff. And so those are longer episodes. But in general, they're about an hour long. Each series that I do consists of five episodes. So I'll do an episode on something related to government, then something related to money, then something related to education, and then an episode on the themes that cover kind of that series, the same themes that come out of that series. And then finally, I wrap it up with a case study where I do some more specific examples or events or something that I'll cover to give a good example of what that series covered. And so you can expect, I think so far I have 55-ish episodes that season one consists of. So it is a good bit, but I do try to condense it down a lot. I personally have done literally thousands of hours of research. And so to condense it down this much, at least, is quite a feat. You know, you said you have a chronological like Nate is it goes chronologically um and you you know you start off talking about the origins of money like I can I kind of wonder like well how did you know where to start the chronology because clearly you could have started it you know a couple hundred years ago you could have started it you know at the birth of Christ you could start <laughs> it with you know pre- <laughs> I mean obviously we go ancient near east things like that but um you know what exactly how did you decide when to start Well, overall, I wanted to kind of explain our modern society and these systems as they exist in uh, their modern form. And so I don't spend a whole lot of time on the early histories. I, Like I mentioned, I did one series on the origins of all these. And with money, for example, I do talk about how early societies bartered and how they structured markets and then why they started using commodity money like gold and other options and how banking developed through that interaction and what the need for that was and how that came up. And so I basically bring it all the way from the beginnings of trade and the use of money all the way to the basically the beginnings of fiat currency. And so that's a very long time period to cover in one episode. But I do that basically just to give the context and the historical context to our modern system. And so I do the same with government and education where I pull some from the ancient Greeks and some from people before that, some from the early societies and civilizations in South America and Central America. And I basically just cover a few things from many different time periods and try to bring it from the origins all the way up into the beginnings of our modern systems in roughly an hour episode. Well, that's certainly quite a feat. And so I, 
what what made you want to jump into doing this? I mean, you might also want to talk about like, you know, how you became a libertarian unless you were always a libertarian. So you can just kind of start wherever you decide there. You can pick your own origin and yes. uh, tell, tell us the backstory. Okay. Well, basically it all started maybe five or six years ago. I had started an investment account and that was a retirement account for myself. I'd always been interested and drawn to economics and investing in stocks, but I never really got into it. And so when I actually opened an account, I definitely wanted to get into it so I could manage it and make money and that kind of stuff, get rich. And uh, it didn't really work out that way, but I got a lot of education out of it. So that kind of started me on my journey. And with that, I took a job. I was self-employed. I had my own business. I went to school for, I did a double major with entrepreneurship and marketing. So I had that business background and then I started my own business out of college. And then I got married and we talked about starting a family. So I took a job that was more stable, had really good benefits. And with that, I ended up with a job that has zero stress and I have the ability to wear earphones and listen to audio content virtually all day long. I get probably five or six hours a day. And so I discovered podcasts. I discovered audiobooks. And since I was interested in investing and I was also interested in theology, I had found a very in-depth Old Testament Bible study that I had gotten into. And that's how I found podcasts. And then with being interested in stocks, I started listening to current events and politics and economics. And so I think one of the early books that I read was Wealth of Nations. And that was one that I knew was a classic for economics, but I didn't really know anything about it. And I was really interested in how Adam Smith and the Wealth of Nations goes into everything from politics to economics to trade and even education, he talks about how people were educated in different ways they did that and how all these intertwined and they were all part of each other. And that was really interesting to me. And so from that, I got into political theory and read Bastiat, The Law. It was a really short one. I'd highly recommend to everybody. And then got into things like Mises and Hayek and Rothbard. And I, as you can tell, steered towards the Austrian economic side of things and libertarianism, which is what that leads to. And that's kind of how I got my libertarian roots, I should say. All the while, my wife and I did start a family, and we talked about how to educate our kids and how we wanted to raise them. And the idea of homeschooling is something that we were open to. So I was doing a lot of research on learning methods and teaching methods and the education system. And with my libertarian research, I was hearing about a lot of the conspiracies and corruption associated with our modern education system. And so that kind of, uh, they joined together, those different paths merged together, as well as from the investing side and economic side that merged through Austrian economics and the political theory side merged as well. All these things came together to I guess, kind of wake me up to what the world is really like, how things really work, what these systems are really like. And I just felt like that was something that everyone should know. It was one of those things where it's like people are sheep and people are asleep and they need to wake up. And that's what was going through my head. And so I remember one day after work, I was basically making an outline of all of these things that I learned. And when I made this outline, it was just little bullet points and it ended up being chronological, which makes sense. And I kind of started at the beginning, worked my way through, made an outline, and I thought about maybe 
writing a book or a set of pamphlets. Then I thought about maybe doing a short podcast, kind of go with the book that people could listen to. And that morphed into, hey, I should start my own podcast. And so that was the route I took. And I use season one as basically condensing all of that information that I learned. Like I said, I listened to about five or six hours a day of audio content from podcasts, audiobooks, and that's added up to a lot of research, a lot of time, and I try to condense all of that into one season and present all this content that I feel like everyone should know and everybody should be exposed to. So you and I are both big audio lists, audiobook and you know podcasts and listeners because I, I likewise have places in my life. I can't do five hours a day on most days, but I have times when I can just listen to audiobooks, whether it's working around the house or commuting or things like that. Um, so I, I kind of get it. So, you know, just like, just like me, you probably had certain people who were influencing you and certain, maybe not necessarily certain people, but certain, certain topics you know, you mentioned to me before we started that like science fiction was was a way in which you got in this direction. So I don't know if you want to explain that because I know a lot of our listeners are into sci-fi. Yeah, yeah, I've actually got I've got a few uh, influences on me, and I'll start with sci-fi. I've always been interested in fantasy and science fiction since the time I was a kid, and as I got older the books that I read growing up were either sci-fi books or they were books on, they're like spy novels or conspiracy novels, things like Robert Ludlum, things like that. And so you can see how that definitely relates to the corruption and conspiracy aspect of (laughs) modern society. And with sci-fi, the way it relates is that good sci-fi, I'll use Dune, for example, by Frank Herbert. That was one of my favorites. It is one of my favorite series. What he does is he intermingles politics and economics and intrigue and conspiracy and all of these things together and does it in a way that really helps you to understand how they work together, how they influence each other, how all these systems interact. And to me, I found that very interesting. There's only so much you can do using real life examples. Whereas with sci-fi, you can create these universes where you can explore many different options, many different possibilities, many different forms of systems and technology. And so to me, that's much more intriguing. And I am intellectually interested in that. It gets my mind going. I really get into that a lot more than kind of real life, which is interesting. There's plenty of interesting things in real life, but there are a lot more limits in real life than there is in a sci-fi book. So that's kind of my draw with sci-fi and kind of how that led me into a lot of the things that I do now, looking at society from a systematic perspective and how all these different systems interact. And then the other influences, I would say, would be theology. There's a podcast called Torah Class, and that was one where he goes really in-depth into Old Testament Bible studies, and he does a whole probably hour-long podcast on one chapter, for example. And so it's, as you can tell, a lot of content. took a lot of time to get through that, but that really spurred me into being more educated because I realized as I got into all this stuff that I'd never really read any of the classic books or classic philosophy. I really didn't know anything about economics aside from the basics. I had a college degree, but I didn't understand politics. I didn't really know a whole lot about history and especially real history, much less what they teach in school. And so I realized I had to educate myself 
And one of the first podcasts that I did that with related to libertarianism would be one called Peace Revolution. That was one that really sucked me in. It was another one with a whole lot of content. Some of the episodes are up to like 15 hours long. It's pretty ridiculous. But he plays a lot of source audio and documentaries and speeches and all kinds of stuff. And so I got all this information. And like I said, I was listening to things all day long, every day, soaking it all in. And that really spurred me to educate myself even further. I still feel like I'm lacking in a lot of areas and I'm still trying to get to a lot of this stuff. But there's just so much out there. And um, I just do what I can to soak in as much as possible. And then as I do, relay that to people in a format that they can understand and that's accessible, but is still fairly in-depth and really teaches you and educates you and gets you thinking from a perspective that you probably haven't seen these things presented from before. I don't know if I've ever heard somebody who listens to audio content for over five hours a day say, it wasn't enough. <laughs> so you were listening to all this stuff and clearly, I mean, you're, you're probably like me in this way where it's like, you know, you absorb so much material and you're like, okay, more people need to know this. And I have the ability to either distill it or, you know, take parts of it and tell other people. And, you know, how did you decide that you could, you know, use what you were doing uh, by listening to all this and some of your skills of being able to write and speak on these things because you're clearly articulate so that you could help other people wake up? Well, mainly it was just this drive that I had to present this information, to present this content. Like you said, I did feel like I could do that. And podcasting was really just the only outlet that I felt like I could realistically do. Like I said, it started a family. I now have three kids and I've got a full-time job and life is extremely busy. I've got all kinds of stuff. I've got hobbies. We've got a little homestead at the house I live at. And we've got two acres with pigs and chickens and gardens and all kinds of stuff. And so my life is busy. I don't have a lot of time. And so what I do is I found a format where I can do the majority of my research through listening during the day and getting a lot of that research done and a lot of that content. And then when I have a chance, I can make outlines for episodes and recording a podcast doesn't really take as much time. It's mostly the research that really is time intensive. And so doing a podcast was a way that I could realistically incorporate that into my life without giving up a whole lot of family time or time to do the things that in real life I really need to do. So what is, so you're about to launch season two. What is that going to be about? What do you hope to do new or cover differently? And, and maybe there's even a format change. Yes. So season two, I am planning on sticking with the same theme of really analyzing society and analyzing the systems in society to better understand what's going on. But I'm going to hit it from a different angle. The kind of the thesis is that we can look at history and look at historical parallels to learn a lot more about things that are going on currently. So you've got an example would be empires, the rise and fall of empires, as the Greek empire rose and fell, the Persian empire rose and fell, the Roman empire rose and fell. You can see patterns and themes that happen. History, to some extent, is cyclical in that way, so that you see similar trends as empires would spread, they would conquer uh, the way they treated the peoples that they conquered was very similar a lot of times. And then this led to usually centralization, led to corruption. And you can see these themes that happen, and you could apply that to modern times. 
And so I did not feel like realistically I could research all ancient empires and combine that into a series. So what I chose to do is find a different historical parallel that I felt was the best example of what we're going through today. And that parallel is the printing press and the time of the Reformation. And so the parallel would be that you have the printing press that comes out where people have a lot more access to information. There is a lot getting out there. It's some propaganda. Some of it's calling out corruption. Some of it's gossip columns. Some of them were manuals on how to hunt witches, all kinds of things. But that is fairly similar to the modern internet where you have all this clickbait stuff, you've got all this random information, all this just pure entertainment, but then you also have access to very good in-depth information that you can access, that you can actually have yourself and get directly, just like they were doing in that time period, which was right around the time of the Reformation, where you had the historic church that pretty much ran everything. They were the ones that were ultimately in control and Typically, the kings and nobles were underneath the church and had to obey the church. But when the Reformation time was getting going, you had these reformers that saw that the church was corrupt and that it needed to be reformed. It needed to be changed. And there had been movements like this many times before, but they didn't really gain traction. And it wasn't until you had the printing press, along with some other aspects, that these Reformation movements really got going and really gained traction. And so the parallel there would be the anti-establishment movements of today. The modern state is the historic church. That's what people look to for their security. That's what they look to for their safety. That's what they put their trust and their hope in and their faith in is the state. People wouldn't know what to do without the state in general, just like they didn't know what they would ever do without the church until the time of the Reformation, when all these ideas got out there through the printing press. And so it's similar to today, where you have all these anti-establishment movements going on. You look at the political unrest, even worldwide, and a lot of this is being enabled by the internet. And so with the internet, people actually have access to the information, and there's corruption that's being called out, and people can educate themselves like they never could before. And so you see there's a lot of direct parallels. You even have the feudal system that was just prior to the Reformation, and that has some direct parallels to the traditional employee-employer relationship. You had the guilds that form very similar to unions that were very dominant a few decades ago. You have things like how politics today is very decisive and everything, even including education in the university system, seems to be filtered through a political view. And it was the same back then, except it wasn't politics, it was theology, it was religion. And everything, including education, was filtered through a theological point of view, a biblical perspective And that was presented to you by the church, just like the political aspects that you hear about today are presented to you by the state. And you have direct parallels with the nobles and the nobility in general to modern corporations, where they both have a large amount of influence on a small subset of the population, but ultimately are under the authority of that higher entity, the church historically and the modern state with corporations. And so what I'm doing with season two is exploring this parallel 
Most of the episodes later in the season will basically take one aspect, one parallel, and dig in deep to how we can apply that to modern times to better understand what's going on, as well as look into the future and what what statistically might be probable to happen. Nothing is guaranteed. I can't tell the future. But I could look at parallels and historical examples, and I can tell you what is at least likely or what a few likely scenarios are or what trends to look out for to know what's happening. And so that's what I want to do. And I'm starting the season by bringing on some other podcast hosts that specialize in some of these areas. I've got two history guys. I've got a libertarian guy. I've got a theologian and a Catholic, and I'm bringing them all on to give their insight, their expertise, their different perspectives on their fields and to kind of introduce the historical context and all of these different aspects so that after I get through this first series of introductory interviews, presenting this information overall to everybody, then I'll get into digging into one specific parallel at a time and try to get very practical and see how they can apply to understanding what's going on today. Hey everybody, Bob Murphy here. Wanted to let you know that on April 20th of 2020, I am going to be debating at the Soho Forum in New York City, and the topic is going to be whether Christians should support free market capitalism. So of course, I'm going to be in the affirmative. My opponent, Tony Campola, is going to be in the negative. If you're interested, I encourage you to get tickets sooner rather than later. Go to libertarianchristians.com slash debate and use the promo code LCI25, all lowercase, in order to get 25% off the ticket price. So again, that's libertarianchristians.com slash debate. Use promo code LCI25, all lowercase. Hope to see you there. So I want to switch gears just a little bit here and get your take on the blockchain. I think it it took me, oh gosh, probably four or five, I don't know, maybe 10 different like episodes of various podcasts to sort of comprehend why the blockchain is so important. I think part of the reason that it took me so long to kind of comprehend it and understand its importance had to do with, you know, when I was listening to it, it had more to do with specifically Bitcoin than Bitcoin's underlying technology in and of itself. So anyway, tell us a little bit about what you cover regarding blockchain. Maybe you can give us some opinions and and thoughts that you have on it. Okay, yeah. So overall, I did do a whole series on blockchain technology that I, I think most listeners can listen in, even if you're not fully aware of exactly how all that stuff works. You're not a tech guy, maybe, um, or girl, but you could probably still understand that. I'm trying to present it in such a way that it's accessible for everybody, but it still does go into depth. So even if you are fluent in blockchain technology, you should still get stuff out of it. But my overall, I guess, opinion would be that there are some major problems with our current systems. That would be things like the Federal Reserve or central banking. They're manipulating wealth and value, and they're doing it through monetary policy. And it's only possible because we have government-controlled fiat currencies. And so this is a very big issue. If you don't trust banks and you don't trust the government and you just have a bunch of cash and you're going to hold on to it yourself, You're not going to let anybody else touch it. They have no access to it. You're just going to put it under your mattress and you think you are safe. Well, you are not. That wealth will decrease over the years. And by the time you pull that money out to use it, it's going to be worth about half as much as it was before, depending on your time frame. And that is through no fault of your own. It is just 
inflation. And that's not really a good thing. If you took a gold bar and buried it in Roman times and then dug it out today, you're going to be able to buy roughly the same amount of stuff. You could have bought like a fancy a toga or a set of sandals and you could dress yourself in a fancy manner and look your best, just like you could today with an ounce of gold. You could buy a fancy suit that was custom fitted with some nice dress shoes and it cost about the same, about an ounce of gold. And if you try to apply that same thinking with money, I couldn't bury the value of my car today, then pull that out 20 years from now expecting to buy another car. It's not going to happen. I might be able to buy a used scooter at that point in time or a flying scooter. I don't know what we'll have. But through inflation and through other means, we lose value no matter what we do and we can't control that. And that is an issue. We also have to go through banks. And so if there's something I want to buy, but my government says I shouldn't buy it or I should pay exorbitant taxes on it or fees, or the bank doesn't think that I should interact with a certain company or person, then they can just not let that transaction go through. They have that power. I don't personally have access to my money to a full extent. I don't fully own it. I can't just go to the bank and say, hey, transfer $50,000 to this guy now and click a button and it's done. That's not how it works. I would have to go through some verification processes and sign some paperwork and they would report that to the government and there's all this stuff involved, usually a holding time period as well as fees associated with it. That's not, to me, true ownership. And these are some of the things that blockchain has the potential to fix and to change. With Bitcoin, for example, and other cryptocurrencies, you 100% control your coins, your money. And you decide how that is handled. You decide when you send it, who you send it to, how you interact with it. You decide all of that and you can use it for whatever you want in whatever way you want at whatever time you want. So we have full ownership. Also, things like inflation are pre-programmed into the code. So you know before you buy a Bitcoin what their protocol is, how many Bitcoins will be created, what will the rate of inflation be roughly, and all of that kind of stuff. You can look at that and it's already set down. There is code that is pre-programmed that determines all this. Whereas monetary policy today, you have no idea. It just depends on whatever the Federal Reserve wants to do. And that might not necessarily correspond with what you think they should do or what's best for you. You can't even vote. Uh, it's not like you can even vote to set part of the direction. Not that vote, you know, again, we know mathematically voting uh, isn't, isn't going to solve the problem, but it's not even like you can vote to change the issue in this case. Yes, yes. And that's one of the very interesting aspects of a lot of the cryptocurrencies is that a lot of them have governance aspects coded into them where if you are holding a coin or if you're staking a coin, they do it different ways depending on the currency. But a lot of times you do have a direct say in the direction of the protocol and in making some of these decisions or at least approving or not approving some decisions or how money is being spent that kind of stuff. And so you can control to some extent, you at least have a say in the development of this currency and in policy. Whereas, like you say, with current state fiat currencies, you have zero say whatsoever. And that's kind of what drew me to blockchain when I discovered it, is that you have this blend, again, of politics and political theory with 
incentive structures and motivations behind the system and governance systems that are set up. And all of these things are under this umbrella of economic theory and technology. And all of this is incorporated together. And in order to have a currency, to develop a currency or a platform, there are plenty of blockchain platforms that are not currencies. But in order to do these, you have to figure out all of these different aspects from the governance to sustainability, to the technology, to anything else. And it all has to be filtered through a lens of economics and political theory and all these things that I personally am very interested in and that are very important. So on one hand, through blockchain, you could potentially have the ability to completely own your own money, which is a big deal. You can influence the progress of that project or that coin, pretty big deal. You can avoid all censorship, potentially, which is a very big deal. And you can actually do all this stuff in a private way. No one can track you or pull up your transaction history and what you bought and when and tax you on it. That's not going to happen at least with some cryptocurrencies. All of them are different, so this is a blanket statement. But you get what I'm saying here. Yeah. There is potential here for all of this stuff. However, on the flip side, what I try to remind people often is that it is also the pipe dream of every dictator throughout history to be able to 100% be able to track and trace every person, every transaction, and have complete control over their money. And that is also available through blockchain, where these transactions and people's financial history can be posted to a blockchain. There is a permanent record there that a government can track, they can trace, they can monitor, they can cut off your funds whenever they want, they can take funds out whenever they want. And this is if you have a centralized, probably state-issued cryptocurrency. And that is something that there are multiple states that are working on this. People like China, as well as many of the central banks throughout the world are working on their own state-run digital currencies. Some are calling them cryptocurrencies. Some are just calling them digital currencies. But we have this push for a cashless society. And I believe that it will be a battle between having a centralized state-run system or even maybe an international system that's done by the World Bank or someone like that. And the other side would be having a decentralized system, something like a Bitcoin or some of these other cryptocurrencies where governments will not have any impact or any say-so pretty much whatsoever if they take off. And obviously, states are not going to want that. So that's something that... I'm curious to see how it plays out, but it has a lot of potential to be the solution for many of the problems we have today. And at the same time, it has a lot of potential to really solidify the technocracy idea that many modern states want to have complete control of their citizenry. Yeah, I think it's a, a very fascinating technology and, you know, I've dabbled in it a little bit. And yet it's still it's still pretty early and there's a lot of uncertainty with respect to how things are going to be regulated. Um, what exactly? I mean, there's like a cryptocurrency coming on every five minutes, um, you know, and people are, you know, again, it's going to be a competition of currency to some extent in, in that space. But it's also going to I think over the long run, we're going to kind of see 
a trajectory where people are going to want more encryption. Um, I think people, generally speaking, like convenience over privacy. And I think as time goes on, they may they may find out that they would like a, at least a mixture, more so of uh, prioritizing a privacy and encryption than they do convenience, because encryption can come with some inconvenience costs sure. to it. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know if you've listened to the Edward Snowden memoir, but he basically was like, you're not going to, in terms of privacy, we're not going to be able to depend on the government to do the right thing. Even if there are a handful of people like congresspersons out there who are very, very much in favor of uh, absolute privacy, um, that's not going to move the needle. And that encryption is the future for that. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely potential for it to go either way. And I'm with you. My biggest worry and fear is that people are very focused on entertainment and convenience. And if it's not entertaining and it's not convenient, people won't do it. And hopefully that changes. Hopefully we have some traction with some of these movements that are going on, these alternative movements, such as the libertarian movement that has really gained steam, especially since the rise of the internet when people can access this information a lot more. I feel like it is a much bigger movement than it used to be. And same with alternative media and a lot of these other options, these alternatives with blockchain technology. Hopefully people see the value and there will probably be some events that happen that might wake people up. But I, I don't know. It could be that people just submit to convenience and entertainment. And you have the mentality that, hey, if I am being taken care of, I have what I need. The government's giving me money. They're making sure I'm fed and my family's protected. So I'm just going to do whatever they want. A lot of people are just content. I've heard the phrase, a free range surf. And that's the way a lot of people act. They're under the rule of the government, and gladly so, because it is more convenient. It feels more safe. And it's scary to take personal responsibility. And my personal opinion is that a lot of that stems from the education system. And there are a lot of ties to why the education system developed the way that it did, especially in America, the university system, as well as the under that, the public education system through elementary school, through high school. And there are a lot of issues there with how kids are taught. They're not really taught how to think or how to think for themselves or how to form opinions. They're not taught rhetoric and how to present their ideas. You don't have generally entrepreneurship class or a personal finance class or a class on how to take care of yourself, things like homesteading ideas and that kind of stuff. They don't teach that in middle school or high school. You can take those as electives in college usually, but that's about it. And you have just a little bit of exposure to that. Instead, kids are trained to memorize a certain amount of material and spit that back out on a test. And basically, you never need that again. And the material that you get is only going to be what the teacher tells you or what the teacher tells you you should look into. Everything the teacher says is completely accurate. Everything in your textbook is completely accurate. And you do not need to go out and do any research or educate yourself on your own. We, the special experts that stand at the front of the class or that write these textbooks are the ones that will tell you what you need to know. We will tell you what the truth is. And that's how kids are trained. And so it's really no wonder why the majority of society as they grow up into adults act that way because in my opinion, they have been through a very long training course throughout their schooling career into 
how to be a content surf. Well, I think that is a compelling case for listening to your podcast, Joshua. <laughs> Thank you. Um, is uh, you have a lot of you have a lot of insight there, and I think it's uh, you know the podcast format that we have here is that it's very introductory in a lot of ways, and we we dive in deep on a handful of items. But I mean, we we can't spend four weeks in a row on one single item. I guess we could, but it's just our choice of you know our of format, and so you know it's, I'm glad ones like yours exist. Um, so before we wrap up, are you working on anything other than a podcast um, or a new season of a podcast? Well, I am to an extent. Um, the caveat here is that I am a family man with a very busy schedule. But my wife and I had actually started doing the Sabbath one day a week on the seventh day of the week, we have decided to try to stay away from technology and screens as much as possible, not go anywhere or do any work and basically follow what the Bible says about the Sabbath. And with that, I took on a project of doing my own personal self-directed Bible study. And I started with Matthew. And then I figured out that I should probably do a study on everything that Jesus talks about through the Sermon on the Mount, especially, and look at that through a more libertarian lens, because I'd never really done that before. And since I have educated myself in a lot of these different areas, I am reading what he's saying in a totally different way, which is very enlightening. I've heard little bits from these types of perspectives by people like Tolstoy, for example, and some other classic theologians like Bonhoeffer, and you get pieces of a more libertarian perspective. But what I've decided to do is as I'm doing this Bible study myself and using multiple commentaries and resources and all kinds of stuff, I am going to turn what I get out of that ideally into a book. And that's my plan. I've started working on that. I've got many pages of notes already. But basically, I want to look at mainly the Sermon on the Mount and a little bit extra for context, but mainly that and look at how Jesus is talking about things like the state and the government and how we should act, how we should interact with the state. If you actually apply what he says and what he teaches and the principles there, what does that mean? How does that give us an accurate assessment of the modern state? How does that teach us how we should, again, interact with the state and how we should support or not support the state? And what does that teach us overall from more of this libertarian political philosophy type perspective. And so that's what I'm working on. I'm at the beginning stages of this and it'll probably take a long time, but I am definitely wanting to eventually get this into a book format, write that out and get that out there. And I think that's something that is again, very needed. A lot like my podcast, it's not a perspective that is very common. And when it is, you have to get little bits and pieces from all these different resources and all these different people. Some were church fathers and some are modern people. And it's really hard. People don't have the, the time usually to do all of this themselves. So if I can do all this myself, do all this research, compile all this stuff together, as well as combining that with my own ideas and my own more original content, then I can present something that I feel is necessary and is relevant and that people will really enjoy and learn from. So that's what I'm working towards. 
Cool. Well, I am. I'm excited to, to see what you come out with on that book. Um, so where can our listeners find you? I've mentioned the name of your podcast, Our Foundations. Is it on most podcast platforms? Yes, you can find it on pretty much any podcast platform or player. It's Our Foundations. You can also go to the website. It's ourfoundations.podbean.com. And that is the website where you can stream the podcast from, as well as I have a few pages on the side that one that tells a little bit about myself, one that talks about some of the resources that I use, the books I've read, the podcasts I listen to, and things like that. So there's a few extra things on there, um, as well as I have a Patreon page. So there's a link to that. And there's a Twitter account that I do for the podcast that is at Foundations PC. So if you are especially into anti-government memes, then you should definitely follow me on Twitter. I try to I try to stick with the things that are basically calling out the government for their corruption and calling out the systems for their inherent and structural flaws that they have and try to get those out in a funny way, usually through memes. So that's something that people could also uh, follow me and interact with me through. Cool. Well, Joshua, I hope our listeners will check out your podcast. The podcast is Our Foundations. And thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Hey, podcast listeners. Since you like listening to audio content, we wanted to let you know about a new audiobook titled Called to Freedom, Why You Can Be Christian and Libertarian. It's read by me, Jacqueline Isaacs, one of the contributing authors of the book, and every download helps to support the Libertarian Christian Institute. To learn more and to download the audiobook today, go to calltofreedombook.com.